This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. From the Fox News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan, it's the fastest growing radio talk show, Brian Kilmeade. Hey, thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. You know how to reach us, 1-866-408-7669. Wow, Uh, we have a lot going on today and so many things to discuss uh, as we get, you know what, it didn't take long before 2024 began uh, beginning a lot of interest. Uh, Tim Scott's on a listening tour. Nikki Haley going to officially announce she's in. Donald Trump responding to Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis responding to Trump. And it's still early. Remember, in 2015... Donald Trump didn't get into the race until June. And keep in mind, too, Jeb Bush was leading for the previous cycle. It was Rudy Giuliani leading. We both know both didn't get the nominations right now. Donald Trump's in most overall polls. DeSantis is ahead in Florida and New Hampshire, but just barely. So a lot has to play out. Steve Moore is going to be on. You know, he's one of America's premier economists. Uh, he is uh, FreedomWorks chief economist, too. So he'll be with us and talk about what the Fed did yesterday. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Sponsored by Crunch Fitness. Interested in owning your own business in a growing $30 billion industry? Check out Crunch Fitness at crunch.com. Number three. And what is the total amount that you estimate was spent through either fraud, improper payments, or waste in any of those programs? It wouldn't surprise me if it exceeds ultimately more than $100 billion. There you go, Andy Biggs, COVID kleptos, oversight hearing show, billions taken fraudulently as trillions in tax dollars were sent out during the pandemic. Among the thieves, China and perhaps Russia. This can't stand, abusers must pay. I'm hoping Dems see it that way too. Number two. There's no invasion of migrants in our community, nor are there hordes of undocumented immigrants committing crimes against citizens or causing havoc in our community. Claiming this continues a false racist narrative. Yeah, that is Ricardo Samiego. He is a judge in El Paso. He doesn't see a problem with the invasion of our southern border and the breakdown. Dems play their hand, and I think it's despicable. The hearings reveal Dems can't defend their own border policy, so they play the race card and call the fentanyl crisis hype. You'll hear it all. Number one. Was that your laptop? For real, I don't know. I know, but, but you know that's... Is, this is I really a, don't know okay. if the answer is. That's you don't know, yes or no, if the laptop was yours. I don't have any yours. idea. I have no idea. So could have been yours. Of course, certainly. It, 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 there could be a laptop out there. Unbelievable. Uh, Hunter Biden, we knew, was lying in 2021. And now we know for sure. Hunter's laptop is real. I know you knew that, but now Hunter admits it thanks to his new legal tactic. And that should embarrass all who called it Russian disinformation and tried to protect the big guy and others. As another FBI research takes place, uh, another FBI search takes place at one of the president's homes. 
The pot thickens all around. And guess what? Hunter Biden did that, admitted that, covered the New York Post today, in order to get a lawsuit together because he wants to sue everybody that knows that he was doing crack with hookers and involved in international business deal. He invites this scrutiny. And that's part of the attitude of a drug addict, in my view, because he's out there at the White House taunting around with his new family, kind of just saying, I dare you to, and went up to Kevin McCarthy at an event, I think, six months ago, almost as if to say, I dare you to challenge me. You can't touch me. We know where this usually leads, uh, especially with the Avenatis of the world who have the arrogance and the swagger. But the Hunter laptop story is really, finally admits it, as Miranda Devine says, one of the greatest own goals. So uh, this, is, this is what he writes. The revelation came in a petulant letter from Hunter's lawyers seeking a criminal probe into what they called attempts to weaponize the laptop. In the 14-page letter to the Delaware Attorney General Kathy Jennings, Biden's attorney, new attorney, Abby Lowell, claimed the repair job shop owner, John Paul Mac Isaac, unlawfully accessed Trump's, lab, Trump's, excuse me, Hunter's laptop data and worked with former President Donald Trump's personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, to weaponize disordered and incriminating contents against Joe Biden. Let's do it. And let's go through some discovery, shall we? And let's really drill down on who is the big guy and what was going on there. And what was Devin Archer doing with the business deal? And what were you doing on the Burisma board? And why you were dealing with the former mayor of Moscow? Let's talk about all that, Hunter Biden. I mean, do you believe this guy? He wants to, he says, back off and I'll sue you. And even names a Fox anchor uh, to talk about that. Remember, here's the extended version of Hunter Biden denying that he even knows if the laptop is real with ABC. Got one. Was that your laptop? For real, I don't know. I know, but, but you know that this is. I really a, don't know okay. if the answer is. That's you don't know yes or no if the laptop. I don't have was any yours. idea. I have no idea. So it could have been yours. Of course, certainly, it, 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 there could be a laptop out there that was stolen from me. There could be that I was hacked. It could be that it was the that it was Russian intelligence. It could be that it was stolen from me. You believe this clown? Stolen from you? You walked into a repair shop. And asked to have it fixed and didn't respond to calls, which can be proven on your voicemail. So he said after a certain amount of days, it becomes his. They open it up. He sees all this. When the FBI comes to pick it up, he keeps a copy of it. The FBI holds on to it. When they realize how serious it is, Johnny Mac Isaac ends up calling Rudy Giuliani. They call the New York Post. And the FBI is ready to counter the narrative, even though the FBI knew this was all true. And his approach is to sue? Really? The Washington Post reported on September 1st, 2020, that Biden, Burisma, and Hunter, Burisma Documents 39 also reported that in October 2020, someone on the West Coast accessed the drive and added the following folders. So they're claiming, yeah, it's my laptop, but someone added folders to it. Burisma pictures, big guy file, the timing is noteworthy. Johnny Mac Isaac reportedly sent the data to Giuliani. We all know all this. You want to make it an actionable lawsuit and back, and back people off because you know the wagons are circling. You know the Republicans are in control of the House, and you're trying to get ahead of the story. Here's Miranda Devine last night, cut 43. Basically, Hunter Biden, through his lawyers, has admitted that, yes, the laptop is his. It's not Russian disinformation, <laughs> as those 51 dishonest intelligence officials told us. 
It's his laptop, which we've been telling people for more than two years. And finally, they've admitted it with this um, kind of ridiculous attempt to uh, go on the offensive. Um, I think John Paul MacIsaac, who I spoke to this afternoon for our story tomorrow, um, put it best. He said, uh, when you're over the target, the flak becomes even heavier. <laughs> and so I think that there's panic in the Biden camp. Yeah. Maybe. Uh, they seem to get away with all this crap. Uh, they have for the longest time. He's out there with a, a rich millionaire who paid his taxes for him out in Malibu, hanging out, probably feeling bad for himself and feeling like he's a target. You've seen some of those exchanges where he's talking to his daughter and saying, I'll never make you do what, uh, what my dad does to me and make you the number one earner and make you support the whole family. It's a drug addict comment. And let's hope it's former. But the attitude's still the same that brought it that. one 408 Guess what? We're going to go to Washington and find out about the hearings, the aftermath, and more. A little about Kevin McCarthy and what that meeting was really like, what the reports say with the President of the United States yesterday as it relates to lifting the debt ceiling and so much more. And then I'll squeeze in some of your calls after talking to economist Steve Moore. You're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Glad you're here. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. Chad Bergram joins us now from Washington, senior congressional correspondent. Man, Chad, some fireworks yesterday. Uh, what do you, how do you characterize them compared to what you've seen before? This is the first shot of oversight and judiciary in action. Yeah, well, I mean, this is what uh, Republicans on the Judiciary Committee said they were going to do. They were going to talk about the border. And I, I noted that this was part one, which means but probably by the end of this Congress, we're going to have part 27. Uh, the other thing that happened yesterday is that you had the uh, uh, introduction of articles of impeachment uh, for Alejandro Mayorkas, the Homeland Security Secretary. Uh, those were introduced yesterday. We don't know that they'll ever get to that point, And we certainly don't know with only a five-seat majority if Republicans could ever pass such a resolution through the House to impeach uh, Mayorkas, and, and it certainly wouldn't go anywhere in the Senate. Uh, but, uh, you know, you have Pat Fallon, a Republican of Texas, uh, introduced those initially, and then Andy Biggs followed up yesterday. So, you know, this is something that Republicans are going to talk about this entire Congress. They think that there is a real problem with the border. It is a real weak spot. And it was interesting to see Democrats, you know, portray this around issues of race, um, 
they said this is just an effort by Republicans uh, to, uh, you know, get on the air somewhere, you know, make a lot of noise. Uh, but, the, you know, the sheer number of border crossings illegally and certainly the gotaways, which is, you know, off the scale, you know, helps the Republicans kind of make their case. Uh, this is an issue. Uh, for the American public, and it's a very weak spot for President Biden, especially going into 2024, if, in fact, he runs for re-election. Uh, no kidding. You know, there's certain things, Chad, where there's two sides to every story. But when it comes to what's happening at the border, there's really not two sides. We've seen the video. We're the only ones covering it for the most part. You're talking about 4 million people, four, over 300,000 gotaways, uh, incredible quantifies of fentanyl, capable of killing the entire population. This is not a time to say it, there's no there there. I mean, that to me, I found so it's uh, kind of astounding that that would be the approach. Listen to some Jerry Nadler as I, I don't know what, you know, what he was thinking. Here is uh, cut 16. Sadly, at every turn, this extreme Republican majority fails to offer genuine solutions and resorts to political theater. Republicans have proposed building a wall, shutting down the asylum system, and defunding the Department of Homeland Security. Those are not serious proposals. It shows people want to take action. Democrats' the feeling is, is no problem. Is that, is that going to work? I'm going to warn you right now of a flashpoint. Uh, the government is funded. Now, we're not talking about the debt ceiling right now, but the government is funded through September 30th. And Kevin McCarthy has made a point that he is going to do things by the, quote, regular order, move bills, appropriations bills through the subcommittee, through the full committee, onto the floor, and pass each of those bills individually. It's going to be a big challenge for him when it comes to the Homeland Security uh, Appropriations Bill and what is uh, you know needed to be in that bill, what it looks like, and then certainly what it looks like when it goes to the Senate and if they can get the Senate to line up. Uh, Republicans have talked about using their power of the purse to influence this issue. Now, politically and tactically, that's a good move, but what they can implement but when you have a Democratic president and a you know Democratic Senate, and you have to get something through the Senate in order to to you know get it passed and send it to the president, uh, that is going to be a landmine, and and we could have potentially uh, a government shutdown over this issue alone. There might be a whole host of other issues that might prompt a government shutdown or a standoff in September, uh, but that might be the biggest one, Brian. Right, and here's more from Nadler. Just to me, not even being serious, he's from a city that has 43,000 illegals that needs $2 billion because we've been flat out overrun. I'm sure you've been reading about it. We're living it, and we're putting them in these beautiful hotels, paying those hotels off to house these migrants who are wrecking the place. Cut 13. The first hearing will showcase the racist tendencies of the extreme MAGA Republican wing of the party that seeks to close the border to refugees from places like Cuba and Venezuela. It almost makes me miss their usual obsession with conspiracy theories and the FBI. I know you're used to the unseriousness and people doing it, but this is an opportunity to be Henry Cuellar. Henry Cuellar says, you know, my people are having such a hard time. I don't care that I'm a Democrat. The border's busted and my people are suffering. You would think that Nadler's policy would be at least to the people that put him in office, right? To, to, to try to address something that's overwhelming his city. Well, look at the contrast, and there's not unanimity among Democrats on this. You know, you mentioned Henry Cuellar. You know, he represents a border district in Texas. Uh, his view on the border is very different than, say, Veronica Escobar, Democrat from El Paso, also representing a border district 
in Texas. She's a little more liberal. In her comments yesterday, she's one of the ones who, who targeted the Republicans and saying this was just about, about race and trying to make a lot of noise. And, you know, Cuellar is more moderate in his politics, but said this is a problem. I mean, he has he has argued about this and been very disappointed with the administration, the Department of Homeland Security and the border security issue, you know, you know, for a long time. But again, just contrast how two different Democrats who represent border towns, border areas in Texas see this. Uh, there's not unanimity. Just totally irresponsible in my view. Here's Kevin McCarthy after meeting with the president about raising the debt ceiling and others. First big meeting, cut 38. He said he, he would not negotiate with me. Now, he just spent an hour with me in the Oval Office. He knew the topic we were talking about. He was aware of what we were going on. And remember why this is so important. All your viewers have to understand. The Democrats that controlled Congress for the last four years, they increased discretionary spending by 30 percent, more than $480 billion. They slammed through at the last minute last year this omnibus bill that over the next 10 years will spend $1.5 trillion. So if you want to know where inflation came from, you know where our problems, it's this runaway spending. So we only have two choices, either responsibility or reckless spending. I know where the American people want to go. So for the president who said he wasn't going to negotiate with me, we talked for more than an hour, gave both perspectives. I thought they were respectful. And he was optimistic after their first meeting. What do, you, do you read between the lines for me, Chad? Reading between the lines is that we're going to have five more months of this. They don't have to deal with the debt ceiling until June. Um, and they're not really talking past one another, but they're talking about different things here. Uh, President Biden said that he would not negotiate the debt ceiling. Uh, but what he didn't say is that he wouldn't negotiate on some type of, of spending agreement or budget cuts or, or something along those lines. Now, of course, Democrats want to make a lot of noise and say, oh, you know, they want to touch your Medicare, your Medicaid, your Social Security. And Kevin McCarthy, if you decode his language here, he might be able to get a win by say, look, I got the president to talk and we came up with some sort of a spending arrangement to, to, to rein in this spending, whether it be caps or whether it be, uh, you know, some sort of budget pact. Uh, we don't know. Uh, almost every time that we've seen uh, us get into this debt ceiling crisis, certainly, you know, 2011. To a much lesser degree in 2013, they have passed something that has resulted in some measure of fiscal control. And that's what, uh, you know, the the super committee failed in 2011. So they had the automatic spending cuts, which was sequestration. Uh, You know, that's still around today. There was a modest agreement between Patty Murray from Washington State at the time was the chair of the Budget Committee, now the president pro tem of the Senate, and, and Paul Ryan, the former speaker, who was chair of the Budget Committee in the House in 2013. So usually these debt ceiling um, crises – I'm not sure that we're to, to the crisis yet – they give members an opportunity to, to deal with spending. But here's the problem for Kevin McCarthy. He talks about balancing the budget. Uh, that is – off the table. You would have to cut right now $7 trillion in spending. You would wreck the economy. You would wreck the global economy. And nobody would ever vote for Republicans again because here was what you have to cut. People say, oh, we want to get rid of that waste, fraud, and abuse. Well, you can't. There's not enough of that out there. That's a great talking point. It's a great line, but you have to deal with entitlement. Last question real quick, Chad. What about Elon Omar? Is she going to get tossed uh, off committee, off the Foreign Relations Committee? Yeah, it looks like it here. It looks like Kevin McCarthy has the votes. Uh, he had a couple of members uh, come around in the past couple of days, uh, Victoria Sparts of Indiana and also Ken Buck of Colorado. Uh, it's a simple majority in the House that will come up later this morning, and he probably would not bring that resolution to the floor unless he had the votes. And even if he didn't, 
then he could weaponize this vote, turn it around on the Democrats and say, look, you voted to support Ilan Omar. And here's all the things that she she did. Gotcha. Uh, this is tit for tat. Remember, yep. the Democrats, they voted to get Paul Gosar, Marjorie Taylor Greene off their committees. Chad, we got it. Thanks so much, Chad. He's the best. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. On my watch, you're taking a different path with Don's health. As a result, the last two years of my administration, we cut the deficit by $1.7 trillion. The largest reduction in debt in American history. While doing all the things I just said, we paid for it all. That is... That is Joe Biden saying how great his economy is while verifying MAGA Republicans saying that Donald Trump added more to the debt than any other president. So here to correct the correct the record, uh, Stephen Moore. Uh, Stephen, hey, welcome back. You. Uh, welcome. So what do you think about that? So, I mean, there isn't there isn't one iota, as my mom would say, the iota of truth in that. So let's go through that. First of all, he said he cut the deficit but one point seven trillion dollars. Here's what happened. So Biden comes in. Remember, the first thing he did was pass that $1.9 trillion, quote, American Recovery Act. And then they added two more big spending bills. So the debt, the deficit in Biden's first year went up to about $2.9 trillion in one year. $2.9 trillion, the worst year ever for the federal deficit. Then last year, the deficit fell to uh, $1.4 trillion, which is still one of the highest levels of deficits ever in the history of this country. So over the two-year period, that's $4.1 trillion of added debt. And so what he's doing is saying, look, the first year when I ran, ran up the debt to the highest level in the history of mankind, uh, compared to the second year, you know, I reduced the deficit by one point seven. That would be like saying if somebody gains 60 pounds one year, and then the next year they gain 30 pounds. Look, I cut my weight gain in half. I mean, what? He keeps saying it. He keeps and he's going to say it in the State of the Union. So how much did Donald Trump add to the deficit? Well, look, I, I worked for Donald Trump. I was one of his senior economists. I, I admire so much what he did for the economy on the tax cuts, deregulation, energy policy, getting tough on China. I mean, I could go through the litany. I have to admit, Trump was not good in cutting spending. You know, look, Republicans like to spend money as much as Democrats do almost. And so, you know, uh, Trump, uh, you know, the deficit did rise under Trump, no question about it. But then Biden came in and he took it into the stratosphere. But I wonder where it was before the pandemic. It was a, a less than a trillion dollars. That's still too much money. You know, we're, we're borrowing way too much money. And it's happened under Republicans and Democrats. My point is that. There's no doubt about it in my mind. I've studied this stuff for 30 years, uh, Brian, that Joe Biden is by far, by a long shot, the most financially reckless president we've ever had. And the other thing he said at the end of that clip was he says, I think I got this right. Didn't he say, and this was all paid for? Yeah. What's he talking about? Nothing's Not one penny of it was paid for. Uh, he ran up the debt by $4.1 trillion. He said, and we paid for all of it? What? Yeah. Where it, does that come from? But the other thing is um, just his policies on oil and gas and what he's doing uh, with the spending, what what Joe Manchin signed up for at the end. Uh, Here's uh, the question is now we watch all the cuts. We see what's happening in the tech sector. We see what's happening in banking. And yet the numbers of the unemployment numbers still say extremely low. Yeah. 
Why is that? I mean, is is it makes you wonder? Is someone juicing these numbers? No, I mean, look, we 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 laid off a lot of people during COVID, and so now we're still in the process three years later of trying to get workers back on the job. And so, part of the problem right now, a big part of the problem, is we added all these government benefit programs. You know, we were the ones that did that study that you guys have reported on Fox and Friends. That, you know, in a lot of states, people can get eighty, ninety thousand dollars $90,000 of government benefits and not work a single hour. So we've got to – I'm going to start sound like our, our mutual buddy Larry Kudlow here. We've got to stop paying people not to work, and we've got to reward people for working. But, but all that stuff's been cut out. I mean that – No, not, no, no, not, no, no. We're still uh, – we are still um, uh, seeing uh, a lot of payments being made. In fact, one of the things that's going to happen, um, I think – Biden may even make this declaration in the next day or two. He's saying he's going to end the COVID emergency by, I think, May 15th. And wait a minute, Brian. The the COVID emergency ended a year and a half ago. Why are we still under – why do you think it is that he wants to ex- keep the COVID emergency going? I think there are two explanations. One is it gives him almost dictatorial powers, which, you know, they love to use the phrase threat to democracy. That's a threat to democracy when you have a president who can basically do whatever he wants without the approval of Congress. The second reason that he wants to delay the uh, end of the COVID emergency, there are all these government welfare and health programs that give more money to people because of the emergency. And and that would end when the emergency is over. So that's why he doesn't want the emergency done. We're paying way, way too much money in unemployment insurance, Medica- Medicaid, um, you know, um, food stamps, all these things. You add them up, you can you can live pretty comfortably. And I, look, you and I believe in a social safety net. But come on, we got to get people back working. Three years. We have had people now collecting government benefits for three years, not working one single hour. Here is Jerome Powell yesterday on a question from Ed Lawrence of FBN Cut Thirty Seven. So you've talked about we had solid uh, job growth. I'm Edward Lawrence from Fox Business, by the way. We had solid job growth, a slight falling in the increase in consumer spending. Um, it seems so far it's been relatively mild uh, from the economy to go to from a 9.1% CPI inflation to 6.5% CPI inflation. Is the hard part yet to come to go from 65 to 2? I don't think we know, honestly. You know, the uh, so we, of course, expected – goods inflation to start coming down by the end of 2021. And it didn't. It didn't come down all through 22. And now it's coming down, and it's coming down pretty fast. So I would say these are. this is not a standard business cycle where you can look at the last 10 times there was a global pandemic and we shut the economy down and uh, Congress did what it did and we did what we did. It's just, it's unique. So he's admitting he doesn't know. What do you think? Uh, want to go inside those numbers to get inflation uh, from six to two? Yeah, I would say that uh, – by the way, I liked his statement that he made yesterday, Brian, where he said the job of the Federal Reserve Board is to achieve price stability, uh, and that will do the most good for the economy. He's exactly right. The job of the Federal Reserve Board is not climate change. You know, there are people who want – them to deal with climate change at the Federal Reserve Board. These are just a bunch of economists. Uh, the job – so we do have to get down to 2 percent. Um, I do think it's going to get tough. It's going to get harder. As you get closer to that target, it's going to get um, get more difficult. But the thing to remember is those price rises that happen – You know, prices are up about 14 or 15 percent since Biden came into office. That's a permanent elevation 
In, in other words, we may stop the acceleration of the inflation, but we're still going to have people really suffering. You know, my my uh, buddy uh, EJ um, Antoni, who works with the Heritage Foundation, has calculated the average family has lost about four thousand dollars in purchasing power, kind of in real take home pay because of this high inflation. That's a lot of money. Right, and they can't figure out uh, how to do that and how to deal with it because supply chains will have to do with it. And then what happens with China? Uh, when it, that's going to affect everything, we don't really control China, and we can't. Right. You know, so whether it had the zero COVID policy or they all got COVID, either way, they are definitely not back up to speed. Here's Steve Ratner on what he thought as he said this on another network. As you know, uh, he worked for Obama. Right. Cut forty. The economy is in a very funny place. There's a lot of really good things happening. A huge number of new jobs yesterday uh, were posted. But at the same time, we are starting to, it does feel like the economy is starting to slow down under the pressure of these higher interest rates and consumers are starting to pull back a bit. You see that in a bunch of these other earnings reports. I think a lot of people are seeing that. And also real estate obviously is affected. I mean, you're going to buy that house, really, at this rate? When rate when we there is hope that these eventually going to come down? You're going to sell your house, really? How much are you going to have to cut your price in order to get your buyer? Everyone goes to hold, let alone the commercial side. Yeah, higher these higher uh, interest rates, especially on mortgages, they negatively affect people who own homes and they negatively affect people who are trying to buy a home. So if you're trying to sell your house, you're going to have to sell at a lower price because of the higher mortgage rates. And if you're trying to buy a house, you're going to have to pay a higher price for the house because, you know, over a 30-year period, the difference between paying a 3% mortgage, which was what it was when Trump was office versus we're at about 6% now, that adds a couple hundred thousand dollars over 30 years to the cost of the house. So that's a big deal. Don't forget also what's happening in the tech sector. We've seen almost a hundred thousand job cuts. I mean, that's why I don't understand right. the unemployment numbers. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I I'm kind of mystified by this too. My advice to people: if you're on the sidelines, you're thinking about getting a job, get the jobs while they're still there. The jobs are out there now. Whether they'll still be there six months from now, I'm 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 worried uh, about the direction. It just so happens I happen to uh, my kids are that certain age where they're about to get their first job, and yeah. they're noticing in banking. That there's a real cutback, and they're getting worried about the promise. When you graduate in May, you got a job. They're getting worried about that. Yeah, so and I'm seeing too. that the tech, cent- yeah. tech I, center. My son too is graduating from college this year, and I'm telling him, you know, David, get out there and get that job. You know, while they're still there, because the, this is a strong job market right now. But that could. Do you remember what happened in 2008, Brian, when that financial crisis hit? Sure. It was like almost overnight that the economy went from being healthy to the worst recession we've ever had. Right. So, I, look, I'm not trying to be doomsday here. I, I pray every night that that doesn't happen again. But, Brian, when I came to Washington in 1984, the national debt was $1.5 trillion. $1.5. 30 years later, $31.5 trillion. That, it, it just that, doesn't seem real. Yeah. It, it, it doesn't a, seem it real. It is a locomotive that is speeding right over a cliff, and we've got to stop this. And that's I, why I'm with McCarthy, folks. McCarthy has to take a hard line with the Republicans. And we'll talk about that. We're going to talk about that, too, because he gave his review of what it was like meeting one on one with the president of the United States. You listen to the Brian Kilmeade show. Steve Moore's here. Uh, You know, Steve, and your role of credits includes you are the chief economist for Freedom Works and author of Godzilla. Don't move. Learning something new every day on the Brian Kilmeade show.
From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. You can't sit down for one hour sitting in the Oval Office across from one another talking about positions for debt ceiling, the economy, and spending uh, without that point. Now, there's times that we strongly disagreed with one another, and that's respectful. But you understand when you sit down with somebody whether you think at the end of the day you could come to an agreement. Look, this is what the American people want. They want us to be responsible about it. They want to control this spending. I mean, 74% of America says they want spending cuts to find those savings. Look, the Democrats have spent like there's no tomorrow. We want to make sure tomorrow's better than today. Uh, Kevin McCarthy uh, talking to Sean Hannity about what he got across with his meeting with the president of the United States. Steve Moore here, uh, economist extraordinaire. Steve, what do you think is going to get done? And what do, what do you think about his tone after the meeting? Let me just say one quick thing about uh, Kevin McCarthy. Remember, it was just a few weeks ago we had that rebellion in the House against Kevin McCarthy. He had to go through something like 12 votes to get the speakership. 15. And he was really criticized um, by, you know, even conservative. You know, some of my friends at Fox were, you know, criticizing them for doing this. But you know what? I think those conservatives, and I don't agree with all their tactics, but they really won a very important procedural changes in the way Congress works uh, in terms of stressing that we have to get to a balanced budget. Now, the reason I say that is because ever since then, Kevin McCarthy's been tougher, you know, and I like that about it. he's got to get tough with tougher Joe than Biden. Mitch McConnell. <laughs> well, that's that's a pretty low bar there. Yeah, so uh, so I, I like what Kevin McCarthy is saying. I hope he sticks to his guns. And look, this is a massive, massively important fight. And I feel very strongly that Republicans cannot blink on this. We have got to get a deal with Biden that lowers government spending, that lowers this debt, that puts us on a path to balanced budget. I think the American people are behind that. Uh, we, everybody knows we can't keep borrowing $2 trillion a year. It's going to c- c- – so – But here's he, the thing. They yeah. keep going back at McCarthy and say, tell me what you want to cut. Yeah. What should he say? Well, you know what? I'm writing a piece right now for foxnews.com on that very subject. I'll give you $500 billion right off the top. There's $300 billion green energy slush fund that Biden created with one of his uh, – he has so many spending bills. $300 billion. Um, Get rid of that. We don't need it. We can't afford it. How about saving $60 billion, not hiring 87,000 new IRS agents? I'll give you a third one. The reports have been coming out. You report on these on on Fox and Friends all the time about the massive amounts of fraud payments. It's got to be specific. Okay. Yeah. We have to go after those people and recapture. I'm not talking about billions. I'm talking about tens and hundreds of billions of dollars that were stolen. Nobody does anything about it. So we could claw back that money, hunt down those people, get the money back from them. There, I just saved you $600 billion right off the top. So they do need to be specific. And then we've got to get spending caps. Every year, we've got to just hold spending at last year's level until we get to a balanced budget. The problem is the first thing I think Republicans agreed to is to hold this defense spending at 2022 levels while we have this growing threat of China and the growing demand from Ukraine. Everybody has different positions on on defense spending. Mine is, we, look, we spend $850 billion a year on defense, by far more the most in the world. We can't, as conservatives, do what liberals do. They uh, judge how well a program is working by how much we spend. No, we have to look at results. We can provide the greatest national defense system in the world 
and not have to continue to spend more money. There's a lot of waste in the in the Pentagon budget as well. We got to get serious about this. And the Democrats, every time we say we need another dollar of spending for defense, you know what the Democrats say? Okay, you have to give us another dollar for social spending. So the budget just keeps going up and up and up and up. Uh, here is uh, Andy Big. You talk about waste. By the way, I, there's two separate things. You got to fund defense, and you got to increase it. But at the same time, you have to have an outside audit yes. to come in and find out. Yes. Who knows the military? You don't yes. need someone on the outside who doesn't understand the difference in missiles and rockets right. and ships. But so understands the military. And it's got to be binding. Yeah. Who would serve on the Simpson-Bowles committee, give up two years of your life, drill down on it and provide it, and then have it ignored? Yeah. They did a bunch of uh, Pentagon reform reports, and it gets totally ignored. Yeah. So I don't know what, what smart person would give up their lives to do this if they're not going to listen. Um, you know, the, the, it's very simple. I live down the street from the Pentagon in, the, in Washington, D.C. That's the largest bureaucracy in the world. <laughs> and so you're telling me that we can't cut some of the and, – and those aren't people in uniform. Those are just government bureaucrats in Washington. So I do think we can provide – you and I agree. I'm a Reagan Republican. We have to have the strongest defense in the world. But we also have to, as Newt Gingrich say, we shouldn't – salute waste just because it's wearing a uniform. Right. And we got to find what's new and what's not. And exactly. we, we go to school on what's working in Ukraine. Uh, By that's the way, it. there's there's about $10 billion of green energy programs in the Defense Department. It's crazy. Yeah. And, uh, here is Congressman Andy Biggs talking about cracking down. He's asking Horowitz, who's the inspector general, uh, cracking down on improper payments that happened during the pandemic. Cut 30. And what is the total amount that you estimate was spent through either fraud improper payments or waste in any of those programs? Yeah, go ahead, Mr. Horowitz. Uh, so, Congressman, um, it's even at this point too early to give any estimate that's reasonable. I've, what I've said before, and I'll say again, it's clearly in the tens of billions of dollars. It wouldn't surprise me if it exceeds ultimately more than $100 billion. Some say as much as a trillion. Yeah. Because the Chinese came in and started sucking this out. So did North Korea. And they think Russia yeah. started applying for this stuff and sucking out the pandemic money. Yeah. By the way, who was who was the congressman asking? Andy that? Biggs. Uh, who was he asking it to? To Horowitz. Horowitz. Who okay. was he? Yeah. Who did uh, the, 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 the inspector, the yeah, IG? the inspector general. Yeah. So, yeah, I would say it's close to at least $100 billion. No doubt about it. Right. That's, that's money that was stolen, folks. That was criminals and, who stole the money. And both should get on the same page with that. There I think we're go. anti-criminal. Steve Moore, thanks so much. Appreciate your insight. Thank you, Brian. All right. You listen to The Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. From high atop Fox News headquarters in New York City. Always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. Uh, we have so much to talk about coming to you from Midtown Manhattan, heard around the country, around the world. Uh, Professor Nicholas uh, Giordano will be joining us. Did you hear what happened with the SUNY thing? Well, SUNY is the State University of New York school system. They now basically have to pass an equity test in order to get their diploma starting this year. An equity test. So basically, white privilege, have to admit to it, give examples of it, and how America is built on stolen land off the backs of slaves. That's going to be the curriculum in New York if you want to be part of the SUNY system and get a, de- a degree. You thought the vaccine was uh, dividing this state. Just wait, the mandates. We'll talk about that with Nicholas Giordano, who's in the SUNY system, 
Uh, he is a professor that will not subscribe to it. Doug Collins is in studio. In two hours, he is going to be on Outnumbered. Before we get to Doug, let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. And what is the total amount that you estimate was spent through either fraud, improper payments, or waste in any of those programs? It wouldn't surprise me if it exceeds ultimately more than $100 billion. Uh, it's got to go way over that. COVID kleptos. Oversight hearings show billions taken fraudulently as trillions in tax dollars were sent out during the pandemic among the thieves, China and perhaps Russia. This can't stand. Abusers must pay. I'm hoping Dems feel the same way. Number two. There's no invasion of migrants in our community, nor are there hordes of undocumented immigrants committing crimes against citizens or causing havoc in our community. Really? Claiming this continues a false racist narrative. A judge in El Paso actually said that about the border. Dems play their hand on the border and it's despicable. The hearings reveal Dems defend their open border policy. So they decide to play the race card for anyone who has a problem with it, like, let's say me, and call the fentanyl crisis hype. Really, you'll hear it all. Number one. Was that your laptop? For real, I don't know. I know, but, but you know that's... Is, this is I really a, don't know okay. if the answer is. That's you don't know yes or no if the laptop was yours. I don't have any yours. idea. I have no idea. So could have been yours. Of course, certainly. It, 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 there could be a laptop out there. That is uh, Amy Roback, who's looking for a job now, asking Hunter Biden on a book tour if the laptop is real. Now, we know it's real. I know you knew it's real. But now Hunter admits, thanks to his legal tactic, that it should embarrass anybody else and embarrass all of those Russian those experts that call the Russians disinformation uh, to protect the big guy, that the laptop is real. And they're going to sue anyone that wants to talk about the contents as another FBI search takes place at one of the president's homes. The plot thickens. With me right now, and I'm going to tap into his legal background, Doug Collins, mm-hmm. former congressman from Georgia, ranking member of the Senate, the House Judiciary Committee, and host of the Doug Collins podcast. Doug, what about this legal tactic of... <laughs> of his team coming out saying the laptop is real, but there are things added to it that are not. And if you keep saying things about it, we'll sue you. Well, I think they finally got aggressive on this because, you know, for you. This is Abby Lowell. This is. They've just gotten aggressive because they've been sort of sitting back taking the punches from a legal perspective. And so from a legal standpoint, they're now saying, look, we've got some cover. And this is one of the things I think people are missing here. Remember the letters that were sent by Jordan and Comer? Uh, these were the letters sent by Jim Jordan and James Comer about uh, investigating the laptops, investigating yeah. something. Well, the DOJ sent back saying, well, now this under special prosecutor, we're not going to give you anything. So now when you have the cover of DOJ supposedly in an investigation and you have the ability to now start framing your narrative and going after those who disagree with that narrative – I mean, from a legal perspective, it's probably all he's got. So, I mean, I mean, again, you got to take it at that, that case. But I didn't think that was going to stand. When Warner and Rubio came out and said, are you kidding me? During the Mueller investigation, you, you, we uh, were able to be read <laughs> into everything. And now you're going to tell me we can't be read in because there's special prosecutors for Trump yeah. and there's special prosecutors for Biden? Yeah, there was a little bit of difference. One of the problems you had is you had leaker-in-chief Adam Schiff and the impeachment stuff with the Mueller investigation and everything else. Anything that they were hearing, they were he was you know basically leaking. You know, Trey Gowdy's talked about it a million times. I have as well. This one is, is interesting in the sense that they're now using this background. But notice, since they had that hearing last week, what's happened? I mean, we're, we're 10 days past that hearing. We're 10 days past that briefing, which everybody got all upset about it. They haven't gotten any more closer to information. 
I would assume they're negotiating, but I guess you would know better. So here's the letter from Abby Lowell, Hunter's attorney. Mr. Johnny Mac Isaac chose to work with Donald Trump's personal lawyer to weaponize Biden's personal computer data against against Joe Biden by unlawfully causing the provision of Mr. Biden's personal data to the New York Post. Now they admit it's all true, (laughs) right? Uh, This failed, dirty political trick directly results in the exposure, exploitation, manipulation of Biden's private and personal information. But they said it wasn't true. Johnny Mac Isaacs intentionally, recklessly, and likely unlawfully conducted uh, conduct allow for hundreds of gigabytes of Biden's personal data without any discretion to be circulated around the Internet. Politicians in the news media have used this unlawfully accessed, copied, distributed, and manipulated data to distort the truth and cause harm to Biden. Now, among he, he never came back to pick up his own laptop. It becomes the, the repair yeah. shop's uh, coverage. They gave it to the FBI. The FBI held on to it. He took a copy of it and said, listen, this is national security. Jo- Rudy Giuliani, here it is. And that's where we got where we are today. Yeah, it is interesting the way that they, he, he sort of crafted that statement. In the sense of looking at, you know, this was taken illegally. Where's that argument been for the last couple of years? And the one, they just ignored it altogether. They said, no, this wasn't his laptop. This is a fake story. This is fake news. And now they're coming back around to saying, well, if, if it was, and when they're admitting it was, and the post story was accurate, that you shouldn't have had this information. This is information that's illegally obtained. Again, I don't hear a standard for what they're saying illegality is here. I mean, that, they, they, at some point they're going to say, where is the illegality? It's about like you going in something and throwing something out in your trash can. And let's just say you were supposed to you, – I'm going to use a crazy example. Uh, somebody who's supposed to be in, uh, not drinking at all, and they throw alcohol bottles in their trash can out front. Somebody walks by and sees alcohol bottles in front, and they say, hey, I was walking by Jim's house yesterday, and there's alcohol bottles. He's out there on TV saying he never drinks alcohol. Okay, that's, that's public information. It's just out there. You're wearing it around. So, again, I'm, I'm anxious to hear eventually what's the legal argument here. But it is, as much as they're going to start suing now, then you know they're going to try and claim that some of it was planted, some of it was not. We'll just see how it goes. But that's their legal argument. Tell me, tell me this is not dangerous. Okay, you want to have this? Let's get into detail. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's go into detail. You <laughs> tell me what's not true and you tell me what is true. And then we'll, let's go into that. Well, we have folders. Uh, Biden Burisma folders, they say, were added later. The Burisma documents were added later. They said salacious pictures package was added later. The big guy file was added later. After they said at a later date, these files came into fray and they forensically can rebuild. Okay. What's in the big guy files? What actually bothers you? As this stuff gets churned out, I could see this going (laughs) not very well. For Mr. Crackhead who loves hookers. Well, it's going to be an interesting way to how they frame it as they go forward. And, again, this is where it gets into this legal argument. But it is interesting now that now the Republicans who took control, the DOJ is basically locked up on anything that they're giving out for this. And now there's – and you've, you've heard the you know the legal fund. You've heard everything else. Is it now coming out to, to say this? And to refute – again, to, to make their case, they're going to have to show, yes, they, again, they can no longer say the laptop's not theirs. Here, here, here's their problem in looking at it, at least acknowledging it. Because if they try to say this part's this, this part's not, then they have to prove what they're saying. And this is, you know, this is what the court system's for. But they've got a, they're gonna have a big lift there. So here's what CNN debated this because they have to, they admitted in a five minute piece that they have a problem with some of these business deals last two weeks ago that Joe Biden was involved in that maybe need further investigation, which we find laughable. Yeah, let's listen. This is so, what they said. Uh, this morning. 
So this, it seems like this Hunter Biden thing it just keeps legs, more legs, more legs, more <laughs> legs. Uh, this is quite the tone shift for the Hunter Biden team, right? For a couple of years now, Hunter and his lawyers have uh, basically tried to not comment at all on these, on these stories. And what they're trying to do now is to say, well, these people have actually broken the law. As you know, Poppy and Don, uh, he's, un he's under investigation for a uh, criminal investigation by the Justice Department. So this allows him to fight on another, in another stage. So, Doug, yeah. um, they are saying, number one, how bad do they look two years ago saying yeah. it's not real now? But he basically just like, oh, yeah, it was real. Yeah, it people yeah. Saw. Yeah. So it's real. So they, they're going to hunt on another stage. In the, por in the portion, if you want to go fight this out, let's take a look at these business deals and tell me what's not real about it. Was there really a CEFC deal with Hunter Biden yeah. and the big guy? And when Tony Bobulinski, I think we need to see you. Yes, you did business with them. Yeah. Please show me what's wrong about the – oh, you, wait, you have the other side yeah. of the laptop? Are you saying that they're just going to back out and they're just going to say you never should have had it? Can you have it both ways? Yeah, the legal issue here that they're going to have to deal with now if they're going forward with this and, and you know – basically bringing suits against people to say, hey, you've misrepresented this, you falsify this, you've you defamed my client, is they're going to have to show, okay, how that actually happened. And so, yes, this is going to become – so the next, the next logical question is, okay, you're saying that this was added in. Well, was it – is it a complete – are you saying it's a complete fabrication that it was, it was added in to hurt Hunter Biden and, and to hurt Joe Biden, or are you saying – that it came from another source and put into a different context. I mean, here's where it really gets interesting in this situation because they're now saying this was all added. They're going to say, so you're saying if it was added, it was just all made up and put in there to make anybody look bad. And then that sort of presents, you know, the different issues of, of actual authenticity and how it came about. And are there other corresponding emails that, you know, again, making up an email chain is a lot harder than putting a paragraph or a picture on, on, a, on a, a, a computer. Right. So as they say, you never should have had it when that gets thrown out of the window and he says our policy was if you leave it here for six months, it becomes mine. I called you three times. I'm on your voicemail. Mm -hmm. Here's my calls I made. So he provides all that and they say, OK, but you never should have let it out. Well, I called the FBI and yeah. the FBI had it. Yeah. So I did the right thing. And then after a while, I realized how bad this is. And I cared about the country. I have a rich patriotic background and I see these international business deals. And as I'm doing this. People are covering this, mm -hmm. and then they're going to just anybody with a conscience, maybe Bob yeah. Woodward, will go, well, what was the business deal? So instead of a guy on crack who loves hookers, yeah. which is a sad addiction story, it is what is the deal that he's doing with Romania, the Moscow mayor in Ukraine? Why were you on that board? Who is the big guy? How did they get the money? So that's why Miranda Devine said this, cut 43. 43. Basically, Hunter Biden, through his lawyers, has admitted that, yes, the laptop is his. It's not Russian disinformation, as those 51 dishonest intelligence officials told us. It's his laptop, which we've been telling people for more than two years. And finally, they've admitted it with this um, kind of ridiculous attempt to... Uh, go on the offensive. Um, I think John Paul MacIsaac, who I spoke to this afternoon for our story tomorrow, um, put it best. He said, uh, when you're over the target, the flak becomes even heavier. <laughs> and so I think that there's panic in the Biden camp. Yeah. So that's a woman who wrote Laptop from Hell and was told you made that whole thing up. <laughs> Again, you talk about a sad situation. You look at this whole situation. Let's also go back to facts. I mean, facts. He was paid 
an obscene amount of money to a company in Burisma in, in Ukraine. Which he's he, not qualified for. Which he's not qualified for. He was paid. I mean, there's never been a, a denial of the money he got from, from China. There's never been a denial made by the money he got from, from uh, Ukraine. All these stuff build up. And so it's like one of those things when you see the facts that nobody's denied and then you start seeing subsects of it coming out. I mean, that's why people are sitting here it's like, you know, okay, something's up here. What is really the tragedy here is the media presentation of this over the past couple of years. That that's to me is Absolutely. the bigger issue here. Is when did we become you know so polarized? And, and let's admit we are. We're so polarized that we won't even take a article that or a a fact that is out there and say, look, here's what they're saying. We're still trying to verify. However you want to do it, but they just flat out said it didn't exist or they didn't cover it. And that's that's the part that Americans every day that I go to see or talk about, they say they just don't believe anything coming out of DOJ anymore. So then we find out that yesterday during Fox and Friends that they went into the Robohoboth home of the president of the United States with their attorneys who <laughs> don't have security clearance watching the FBI go through his home. What is it? Since November 1st, they could have went through. So you had three months. I know there's a tremendous risk of throwing stuff up, grinding it out and picking up. But. This after two weeks ago, we were found out the FBI did go through. We heard about that search for 13 hours. And then we hear November 15th, the FBI went through the UPenn Biden Center. Can you compare that to Mar-a-Lago, please? Which, by the way, I don't support. The president shouldn't have brought that stuff yeah, back. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, I'm not supporting that. But look at both these sort of stories, Doug Collins. Yeah, it, it is a problem. And, and because, again, it goes back to this very underlying f- thought that most people out there in the world – don't understand why there's different treatment. And it is so obvious. I mean, you have a sitting president. They go into it. We find out after the fact. He's already been to the Rehoboth House, I think, bef- you know, many, many times between these searches. He was in Rehoboth while they were searching <laughs> Searching Wilmington. Wilmington. And then they went from Wilmington. Yeah. So, I mean, again, it, it, again, the issue of where you should have it, not have it, anything else, it comes back to the fact of why is this being treated differently? Or could it come back to what, you know, Mueller said or another said that you can't charge a sitting president? Who knows? But they're right now, they're not doing it. Here's my problem with this, though. Can I stop you right yeah. there? Compare Donald Trump's first year. They yeah. raided Michael Cohen's office yes. on a Sunday to yeah. get information about a current president. I'm going to bring it back to you. I first. think it was Stormy Daniels. Yeah, well, not even just the president's wrong residence, which was, I think, you know, completely wrong, this, this negotiation. Go back to Rod, you know, Roger Stone. Go back to all these others that they have perp walked or they have caught in at the, in the morning. I, I talked about this. Again, I, I'm not concerned about the end of the day. Okay, if you've got a reason to go there, okay, law enforcement, I get. But when you have press there and you go in as if you're taking down a drug cartel for a, you know. A, for an 80-year-old guy. Man who's, who may or may not have. Okay, I, it just doesn't make sense. And, again, people see that. And then they turn around. And then when it's on the opposite, Hunter, it's anything with the Bidens or Hillary Clinton. Remember who got to sit in on the interviews with Hillary Clinton? Her attorney. Right. Again, it just does. Uh, and, and now, look, and to be you know, fair, they quote, told the Trump attorneys who were told to stand away, kept apart. I never, I've not heard that language. They may have told the Biden attorneys to do the same thing. But again, it just, it, the PR side of this is terrible. All right, I want to get your take on 2024, how the race is shaping up, and also find out what's going to be on Outnumbered. Uh, Doug, thanks for coming in. Don't move. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. A talk show that's real. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. He still has a lot of popularity. If he runs again in 2024, will you support him? Yes. 
If he decides that he's going to run, would that preclude any sort of run that you would possibly make yourself? I would not run if President Trump ran. So President Trump put that out, that Nikki Haley would not run, but it looks like on the 15th, she'll make it official. The former governor of South Carolina will run uh, for president of the United States and call Trump himself. Uh, Doug Collins, you got a unique view of this. You know the president well. You now you're out. You're going to be on tele. You're on television. Analyze uh, Nikki Haley going in. Interesting going in. I think they're they're playing it right now. I think there's either the path here. I don't. Frankly, I'm not sure how far this goes. I, again, it may be a if he were Donald Trump. You know, the, the setup between Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis is is become the the main focus. And you think what, everybody else is clearly. In the second tier. They're second tier for now, yes. Because what they, and what they may be planning on is if the two of those at the top end up killing, in, each, in, other. killing each other, then you move up from one from the bottom. That could be her angle a little bit. Um, look, she has done everything but say I'm running for president. It's just sort of She's going to be in. Just yeah. picture, picture her yeah. in. Yeah. She's in. Well, she, but, but she's been doing it for three years. She's been going to every campaign in the country. She's been going to everything in the world, and she just show up. What do you think of her candidacy? I mean, she'll have some ideas, but I, I just don't think – I think she's she, – we'll have to see what she does with money and how she does it with perception. Nobody knows who she is. Tim Scott on a listening tour, yep. he's got money, yes. and he does have a lot of support, and, man, he has experience. Yeah. Tim Tim will be interesting to see if he actually jumps into it. It's funny that it was Haley who appointed Scott to the Senate and so um, when DeMint resigned. So, so. Trump is not uh, running away with the polls? And he's not running away with the donors? I saw Franklin Graham come out and say he was a great president, but his time, he's a little old. We saw that in the RNC meeting last week. You know, the reporting coming out of it, there was a lot of members of the RNC, which, again, that's a whole different topic. But there was a list saying, say, hey, we want to see a primary. Lindsey Graham's endorsing him. Are you? I have not endorsed anybody. Are you no, going to? I'm not endorsing anybody, right? I'm right. watching 2024. What if I ran? Out. Would you endorse me? I might get you, Brian. You might. Brian, you wouldn't yeah. even commit to it. <laughs> hey, come on. Hey, hey, I'm, I'm going to pull a hunter here. Hey, what do you got for me? <laughs> <laughs> A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, uh, joining me now is Nicholas Giordano. He's a professor at Suffolk Community College, part of the SUNY system. And what SUNY, if you listen around the country, of course, WABC and RCN listeners get it, uh, WLAR. They know SUNY system is the state university system. But here, these are considered, uh, for the most part, they're excellent schools, 64 strong. uh, And they are affordable if you're a New York stater. And a lot of people have chosen that way as opposed to independence. Independent colleges can cost up to $70,000. Then it comes out that this story, that social justice, you'll have to go through a social justice curriculum in order to get your degree. Uh, This is unbelievable. We're going to learn, and you have to sign off on the fact that America is born on stolen land on the backs of slaves, that if you're white, you live a privileged lifestyle, that if you're black, uh, the the world is stacked against you. Uh, and this is the type of thing you're going to need to get your degree. You're going to ask yourself, would you sign off on this among the people that are outraged? And there's a lot. Nicholas Giordano, a SUNY professor at Suffolk. Nicholas, welcome. Thanks for having me on, Brian. How are you? So good. How would you describe what now students who are coming into, who might get accepted and choose to come in September to a SUNY school, one of the 64 SUNY schools, what are they going to be in for? Well, I think you're right. I think SUNY is an outstanding university system. It has been for decades. And unfortunately, why they're doing this, I can't answer that question. 
But what it does to students that are incoming in the fall of 2023 is it's designed to make every single degree program incorporate social justice and diversity, equity, and inclusion. We're talking about degree programs in mathematics, engineering. It doesn't matter. Everyone has to go through this. And they, the courses have to either be new courses developed that could be diversity, equity, inclusion certified, or we have to revise current courses to meet this obligation. And there's no debating it. It's something where if you're putting this out as a degree requirement, where SUNY specifically states courses must address how institutional and societal structures lead to inequities across groups and current and future social justice action. We all know they're not talking about social justice and calling for limited government or calling for fiscal responsibility. So they're trying to push a political agenda rather than educate students, get them to think critically and prepare them for the workforce. So diversity, equity, inclusion, and social justice, there'll be a classes to earn your diploma. They say that this has been implemented at uh, Villanova, Brandeis, University of California system. It's essentially racial equity programs. They also claim that officials consulted with faculty and students on campus for months before approving this plan. Were you consulted? Did you hear about this, Nick? No, we were never consulted. I mean, that, that's just lying. Colleges throughout the United States are moving in this direction. A lot of them are doing it, so everyone has to pay attention. But the reality is the discussions were held at the higher levels, and it was right in the heart of COVID, you know, starting in the, the beginning of 2021, shortly after George Floyd in 2020. And so while professors were on line trying to deal with the mental health crisis, the colleges were shut down. There was no discussion of this, and that's why they did it then, because they could get it under the radar, and then it came to light last semester because now the degree programs have to be changed and approved. So you're a political science teacher, right? Correct. So how are you going to reform if If you don't put these into your curriculum, they're probably going to let you go. It, well, it's going to be challenging. So it, it, I, my courses are not going to be reformed. We're not revising my courses. In fact, um, when we look at it, students will have, if they're in the political science program, they're going to have to take an elective of the diversity, equity, and inclusion. So I, I could still teach my courses, and it won't affect me, but they're going to have to take this DEI class and get their social justice training elsewhere. It's my job as a professor not to indoctrinate my students. I I'm not supposed to give my students my beliefs on the issues. It's my job to get them to think critically and tell them how the structures of government works. And by this blanket generalization that the system is institutionally and inherently racist and always has been, always will be, I have a big problem with that. Because when you push back and ask them, well, what specific institution? They can't give you any real answers. And that's the problem. But there's no debate allowed. And another thing that makes it worse is you are now seeing job openings for teaching where it says the preferred qualifications are demonstrated experience in diversity, equity, inclusion, and social justice. You're kidding. A commitment to diversity, equity, inclusion, and social justice. That's how bad it is. But there are solutions, and that's the good thing. Well, yeah, we'll get to the solutions in a second. So now, if you want to indoctrinate people, not only to get a degree, but if you start convincing them that they can, uh, let's focus on how you're 
discriminated against because of your gender or the gender that you choose, uh, the class, of course, the race. And so if those things happen, you're going to start, instead of being the melting pot, which uh, we're a bunch of people from different nationalities, different backgrounds, shapes and sizes, but we all believe in one country, this to me is a curriculum of division. It is. It creates the victimhood culture and it encourages tribalism where the identity is put above country, where people are going to go and retreat to their groups, and that's going to factionalize our society. And you know history very well. Madison warned about what happens when you have these factions. It could destroy society. It hasn't worked out well for Afghanistan, Libya, and those other countries. It's not going to work out well for us, especially because we're a unique nation. Our national model, e pluribus unum, out of many, one nation. Out of many different people from different places comes one nation built on core principles of liberty, limited government, equality. And we're erasing that now. We're saying that your individual identity is above the American identity, that your group is above the American identity. So there's not going to be this loyalty to the country that's supposed to exist. I mean, think about it. If you grow up, through an education system, K through 12 and now college, and you're told what a horrible place and evil place America and its institutions are, how are you going to be loyal to that uh, country? And you're not. You're that's not. a big and, part of it. And, and you got to wonder if that's a goal. So what can you do about it? Uh, we're talking to Nick Giordano, professor, a SUNY professor at Suffolk Community College, and we're talking about this new social justice programming that every incoming freshman from here on in will have to go through, and now the SUNY system, 64 institutions strong. Well, and I've written about this for campus reform because part of our problem is faculty don't speak up enough. There are plenty of faculty from both sides of the political aisle that I've heard from that are against these new requirements because they worry it's going to infringe on academic freedom and limit what they can and cannot teach in the classroom. So faculty need to get the courage to speak up. Parents, parents can look at the schools they're sending their child to and they could decide, well, if this school is focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion and not preparing my child for the workforce, my young adult for the workforce, well, then I'm not going to send them there. The power of the purse is extraordinarily strong. You have alumni that could stop giving contributions to some of these schools as a way to put pressure on them. Corporations, I've written about this, again, for campus reform, where corporations are dropping degree program requirements because they don't want social justice warriors. They want efficient and quality work being done. And so the employers need to push back against the colleges and say, hey, what are you doing here? Why are you doing this? Give the students the knowledge they need to be productive members within society. And, and if we could see that unification of people speaking out, then I think we could prevent this from actually happening. But once it's implemented, it's going to be really difficult to undo. No question. And that's where the country's heading. And then you say, well, how are they going to uh, exist in a world that doesn't accept all these views and are going, not going to look at everybody as a victim and doesn't care about your color uh, of your skin. They're just going to look for a performance. But if you keep on graduating people to feel like this, soon these people will be in power. Just go to show you there's people on the left who have a problem with this, one of which is Bill Maher. Uh, let's listen to his debate with Brian Cranston. It's 400 years that we've dealt with this. Oh. And our country still has not taken responsibility or accountability for the history of the systemic racism that's in this country. What should we do more? 
Well, I mean, for for one thing, uh, critical race theory, I think, is essential to be teaching. Critical race theory can mean it's. I mean, it's just one of these catch-all terms. If you mean we should honestly teach our past, of course. If you mean more what the uh, 1619 book says, which is that it's just the essence of America and that we are irredeemable, that's just wrong. And he goes on. And this is a left-wing guy debating a left-wing actor in their little bubble. But Bill Maher is not in that bubble. Well, thank God he's not. And the 1619 Project's a fraud, but 4,500 school districts did adopt it. And it amazes me because the left has controlled the academia for, for a century. And the reality is that if we weren't teaching these things, then they're the ones that weren't teaching it. I mean, I talk in my classes about people like Filippo Mazzi, who helped write the Declaration of Independence. It was his idea of all men being created equal. And then Thomas Jefferson became friends and spoke about liberty. I talk about Crispus Attucks and, and Brister Slenson. You know, when we look at this, Peter Salem, these are names that are hardly brought up. But if you look at our unique culture, there were enormous amount of black contributions. There were Hispanic contributions from the founding. And so if you want to talk, how about we talk more about their contributions into the founding of America and what they were fighting for? Rather than this America was built on racism and there's nothing we could do to redeem ourselves for our past. The reality is we made great strides. And what DEI, social justice, attempt to do in these curriculums is erase all the strides we've made over the last 250 years. And to me, that's despicable. Right. Uh, Yeah, that with uh, what's going on with crime and these uh, liberal DAs. And uh, it's unbelievable. There's we have like a uh, there's a sinister force working within our country to take down our country from within. And I think this is an important piece of it. And it's got to be pushed back by people like you, Professor Nicholas Giordano. And how do we get your podcast? PASReport.com. You can go to their PAS Report website. My podcast on all podcast platforms. And you can also go to CampusReform.org. Go get them, uh, Professor Nicholas Giordano. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me, Brian. You got it. Uh, important message. I don't know what you could do at this point. And the one thing that if you choose not to go to that school, a lot most of these private colleges are double. So you might be have to you might not have a choice. An elite institution that's affordable that you're paying tax dollars for, tax dollars for, if you can get into them to walk away because of this is a tough call for parents. Not easy. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Educating, entertaining, enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. I hope that's the goal. The more you listen, the more you know. Uh, special thanks to uh, for all our guests for coming in, but Professor Giordano also put himself out there talking about what how he feels about this curriculum that's being jammed down all these students' throats. A lot of them have no choice. It's great. And uh, Doug Collins, too. But I'm thinking to myself, you need to know more. More to know. Sponsored by Unplugged. Reclaim your privacy from big tech snooping with Unplugged. Visit Unplugged.com. All right, here we go. Sylvester Stallone lands the family Stallone reality show with his lovely wife, Jennifer Flavin, and three daughters. Uh, I'm really surprised by this, but I'm interested in it. It'll follow him in the eight-part reality series debut on streaming services this spring. After playing some of the most legendary characters, he's now playing himself. 
as a dad and a husband. In addition, the actor of the series will allow viewers to get to know his wife, Jennifer Flavin, who was born and raised in Los Angeles. I didn't think anybody was actually born in Los Angeles. Everyone migrated there. And now is the co-owner of the wellness brand, Serious Skin Care. Do you use that, Allison? I don't. Maybe they could be a sponsor. That would be great. Uh, Sophia and Sistine Stallone co-host the Unwaxed podcast together. Uh, while the eldest is not interested in acting, both Sistine and Scarlett are hoping to enter the entertainment industry. Sistine is an actor um, and model and filmmaker, and Scarlett as an actor uh, appearing alongside her dad in the Tulsa King. Wow, I didn't know she appeared that was with her dad. I'm trying to think, which one is she? I didn't see it, but yeah, I didn't know that either. I'm but- almost, I, I finished the series. Really good first season. Nice. They're coming back for a second. Fantastic. Do you think he'd be doing this reality show if his daughters didn't want to get into the industry? Well, I remember um, Terry Bradshaw mentioned to me he did the reality show because his family wanted to do it. Oh. So I think the same thing. Do so you think their marriage, you think they got back together for the reality show? Well, he had a tattoo of her. He mm-hmm. blotched it out. And then they got back together. I don't know if he unblotched. Do you think he'll get a new tattoo on the reality show of his wife? <laughs> Let's talk about it next. Parents pay at least one monthly bill for 40% of millennials. I don't know how they did this study. They surveyed 2,000 people uh, for one poll, Chartway Federal Credit Union in Virginia. So young adults were, were polled. In a new series, two, uh, two-fifths of millennials say their parents still pick one or more of their monthly bills. Pick it up. And the most common parental subsidy is the housing. of millennials say mom or dad pay their rent. 70% say parents cover the mortgage. Smaller shares of 26 to 41. Demo reported parents help with groceries. 22% there. Utility bills, 19%. Insurance, 18%. And car payments, 16%. So, doesn't surprise me. It doesn't, but millennials are sort of on the older side now. They're not like, you know, 19. How old are millennials? Eric. 38. <laughs> They're 38? Yeah, oh, that's pretty old. Yeah. Right. So 38, yeah, they probably do that. Did, did you pick up, does your mom pick up most of your bills, Allison? Oh, that's why I am able to keep this job. <laughs> <laughs> Next. Short on cash, more Americans tap their 401k savings for emergencies. Squeezed by higher prices, a record of 2.8% of the 5 million people in 401ks. Uh, run by Vanguard, tap their retirement savings to cope with hardships such as medical bills, evictions, foreclosures, or anything like that, something big. That's up 2.1% and a pre-pandemic average of 2%. The increase is the number of people uh, taking hardship withdrawals is probably driven by several government moves in 2018 that have loosened the rules for taking such distributions out. So I guess the penalties aren't high. Is Is that bank speak for that? I guess maybe they, like, lessen maybe some of the tax consequences with that. But, I mean, that's being very short-sighted because now what's going to happen when these people try to retire if they don't pay it back? They're going to be right. looking for well, more money. living off Social Security, which is going bankrupt in 2030, exactly. which everyone's supposed to uh, bring up for. That's kind of sad. Uh, next, Amazon could have more robots than employees in seven years. Uh, ARK Invest CEO Kathy Wood predicted that Amazon could use more robots. The portfolio manager who makes her investment decisions based on companies she believes in who create disruptive innovations noted that an interview with CNBC that Amazon is currently increasing automation to a tremendous extent. Uh, it's adding 1,000 robots a day. Really? If you compare that number of robots, it's adding about 1,000 a th- a robots. Do we, can, do we even have 1,000 built a day? 
Well, I mean, what do they consider a robot, right? How it, I mean, it doesn't need to be like the Terminator, right? It could be something tiny. If you compare the number of robots Amazon has and the number of employees, it's about a third. And we believe that by the year 2030, Amazon can have more robots than employees. So maybe if it increases efficiency, if they can't get people to do it, but they did lay off a whole bunch of people, remember? I wonder if that has anything to do with the robot mania. Maybe, but you also can understand how a giant warehouse, how automation is much more efficient. You don't have to worry about them getting hurt like a person throwing out their back or a right. package falling A lot of people find them monotonous. Maybe they don't want to do it. That's true, too. Resurfacing Mr. Rogers' video features uh-huh. iconic TV stores seemingly warning against transgenderism among kids. We have that audio, which you may hear at some point later on the show. Not this hour. Not right now. Right. <laughs> I mean, who would even... I didn't even know what transgenderism was. No, I mean, he doesn't. He basically sings boys are boys and girls are girls. How dare he? I know, right? He was, he was so controversial, that Mr. Rogers. Thanks so much for listening. Brian Kilmeade Show. From the Fox News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan, it's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show, coming to you from Midtown Manhattan, heard around the country, heard around the world, and on hopefully your podcast schedule. Bottom of the hour, New York Post finest. Ian O'Connor, uh, columnist, author of Belichick and many bestsellers. Last one about Coach K will bring us inside the retirement of Tom Brady and how he thinks he'll be as a broadcaster. What went into it? Why this year and not last? Do, do you think he'll undo it? Ian O'Connor on that. And Raphael Mangul will be with us. Uh, He's a fellow at the head research for the Policing and Public Safety Initiative at the Manhattan Institute. This guy knows more about crime than most people will ever even consider or read. Uh, He's also a contributing editor of City Journal and author of Criminal Injustice. Uh, So Raphael will be with us. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. And what is the total amount that you estimate was spent through either fraud, improper payments, or waste in any of those programs? It wouldn't surprise me if it exceeds ultimately more than $100 billion. COVID kleptos. Oversight hearings show billions taken fraudulently as trillions in tax dollars were sent out during the pandemic. We have to get this money back. Number two. There's no invasion of migrants in our community, nor are there hordes of undocumented immigrants committing crimes against citizens are causing havoc in our community. Claiming this continues a false, racist narrative. Really? Dems play their hand at the border, and it's despicable. The hearings reveal that Dems can't defend their open border policy, so they play the race card and call the fentanyl crisis hype. You'll hear it all. Number one. Was that your laptop? For real? I don't know. I know, but, but you know that's... Is, this I is really a, don't know okay. what the answer is. That's you don't know yes or no if the laptop was I don't have any yours. idea. I have no idea. So could have been yours. Of course, certainly. It, 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 there could be a laptop out there. Really? Certainly? Of course it was. Hunter's laptop is real. I know you know that. But now Hunter admits it, thanks to his new legal tactic, and that should embarrass all who call it... Russian disinformation, like, for example, the 51 so-called intel experts from Leon Panetta on down. They tried to protect the big guy as another FBI research takes place at one of another one of the president's homes. The plot thickens. So Raphael Mangold joins us now. Raphael, welcome back. 
Yeah, thanks so much for having me back. So people are watching the funeral and what happened over in Memphis. Uh, and here's what Al Sharpton said about uh, who is at fault, even though five black cops killed one black man. How are they going to keep crime down in the black community and at the same time not be tough and rough? Well, they do it the same way they do it on the white side of Memphis and they keep the crime down without being rough and tough. How do you have the same department that can keep crime down on one side of town without beating folk to death? But you can't do it on the other side of town unless you feel that you can get away with it there. I can't speak for everybody in Memphis. I can't speak for everybody gathering. But for me, I believe if that man had been white, you wouldn't have beat him like that that night. Really? We don't know what happened yeah, leading up to the pullover, but Raphael, what do the stats say about that? Well, the, the stats, of course, say that that's a ridiculous argument to make. We know um, that, that white people are subject to police uses of force, both legal and illegal, right? Does the name Daniel Shaver mean anything to you? Does the name Tony Timpa mean anything to you? These, of course, are stories that didn't get national attention in part because uh, the victims uh, were were white. But you know, the, the idea that this was racism, I think, is is you know, uh, really strange credulity. It's something that I don't think the majority of the public is ready and willing to believe. I think everyone, you know, when when one of these tragedies happens, you know, a lot of people who are kind of in the movement, um, so to speak, try to figure out ways to, to mobilize to make those tragedies work for them. And so it's not surprising that this is going to be sort of depicted through the racial lens. Um, but but here's the here's the problem that that someone like Sharkin is is forgetting, um, you know, policing. Every single study of policing shows that it reduces crime. Proactive policing reduces crime. Hotspots policing reduces crime. Now, what happened? to Tyree Nichols was separate and apart from legitimate policing. Everyone recognizes that. There's a reason why the the sort of reaction to that case was unanimous in its denunciation of the conduct depicted in those really hard to watch videos, right? From police executives to you know even the president of the, the Fraternal Order of Police, one of the biggest policing in the country, have all denounced this, right? So you have to remember that A, policing reduces crime, B, policing does not mean this kind of brutality. Now, when you think about the crime reductions of police, the most important thing to remember is that crime is not evenly distributed, right? We know that black men are victimized at significantly higher rates than white men. So when crime goes down, it disproportionately benefits black men. And so the question then becomes, if Sharpton and AOC and those folks are right about policing as an institution, that it's racist, that it's designed and operated for the specific oppression of black men, why on earth would that institution so disproportionately benefit black men when the institution achieves its stated ends as stated by the people at the institution's home, right? And you ask any police chief, any law and order prosecutor, what is it that you want to achieve? They all say, we want to keep crime under control. We want crime to go down. But when that happens, it doesn't benefit rich white people. And so I'm really, you know, sort of almost at my limit in terms of how much more of this kind of rhetoric I can tolerate, because every single piece of data tells us that policing is essentially an anti-racist institution. Right. Uh, and then we also know when things like this happen, black or white, uh, you, you stop at the proactive policing and all hell breaks loose. For example, what happened in Baltimore after the gray story and what, what happens 
in just about every city uh, because people have pulled back, especially Minneapolis. Yeah, Minneapolis, Chicago after Laquan McDonald, um, you know, New York after Eric Garner, the list goes on. And yet, you know, there seems to be an unwillingness to learn that lesson. I mean, you know, I wrote a piece about this case, you know, in part because of how horrible it was, but also just to kind of call attention to our recent history, right? And what happened to George Floyd was atrocious. Everyone agreed, right? The the, the police officers were very quickly fired, very quickly uh, indicted, arrested, charged, and convicted of murder. Now, what happened in the wake of that is that places around the country, including Memphis, made very rash policy choices in a very short period of time. In the year following George Floyd's death, 30 states passed over 140 police reform measures. That's just at the state level. City councils across the country enacted their own police reform. City councils across the country defunded their police to various extents. Um, the Memphis Police Department aligned itself with the quote-unquote eight-can't-wait campaign, which was a, a campaign that promoted eight different police reforms that we were all told was supposed to minimize, um, you know, this kind, of, this kind of outcome. What also happened, though, is as a result of, of, that, of that rash decision-making, we saw police officers pull back. We saw police officers resign and leave urban departments where they're needed most. And what that meant is that the police officers that were – that they were being replaced with tended to be of lower quality because a lot of departments were struggling so much to recruit and retain officers that they actually had to lower standards, get rid of educational requirements or reduce educational requirements, um, look the other way on prior convictions, uh, prior drug use. That's not a recipe for anything good. And what really frustrates me and what I think reveals uh, uh, that, that the sort of you know police critic movement isn't really about progress is that there's been a lot of progress that they never acknowledge. And if you look at the 1970s, police officers used force at enormously higher rates than they use it now. In 1971, the NYPD shot and wounded over 220 people. Now that number is usually around a dozen to two dozen. That's a, that's a lot of progress. I think the, the NYPD yeah. shot and killed nine people. Overwhelming majority of those were justified. And so, you know, we have to understand that in the context of, you know, almost 700,000 cops in this country making 10 million arrests a year, the horrible things that we see, and we should acknowledge that they're horrible, are not representative of the institution. Um, and that should make us all feel better. Again, doesn't right. mean we shouldn't work to, to make that even rarer. But we got to get, we got, but Raphael, must drive you crazy because you, you know the numbers and you hear the rhetoric and they just don't add up. You do this for a living. Raphael Mango, our guest, a crime expert. They say we're about between we're at thirty four thousand cops in New York City. We need about thirty eight thousand. I understand Memphis is about four hundred down. I understand that in New Orleans, they are so light on cops. They have to pull in from other states to actually handle Mardi Gras next week. And we know how rife they are, let alone uh, with the quality's gone down because they're not backed up. They're not paid enough. And and we see the people's view of policing. How bad is it? Oh, it's really bad. I mean, uh, the the Police Executive Research Forum, which is a um, you know a sort of poli- uh, an, an, an association of police chiefs and and sheriffs from around the country, they produced uh, um, some research over the last couple of years on what they call the workforce crisis. And the most recent report shows that only ninety four percent of budgeted positions for police officers in this country are actually filled. By contrast, in Canada, for example, 99%, more than 99% are filled, right? So we have a real gap. And the gap 
on the national level is actually bigger when you dig into these big urban departments. And one of the reasons for that, I suspect, is that those are the departments in which cops are most likely to get into the sort of trouble that they're trying to avoid, right? If they're proactive and someone resists and they have to use force and it doesn't look pretty on video, police officers in big cities no longer feel like they are going to be given the benefit of the doubt. In fact, I think the overwhelming feeling, at least from the cops that I've talked to, is that they are going to be tried and convicted in the court of public opinion and that the, their cities will not stand behind them. And that is a huge point of discouragement for people who are highly educated, highly motivated, and psychologically stable from taking that job. And the more that you discourage high-quality candidates from taking the career path of policing, the lower the quality yeah. of the median police officer and the smaller the delta between the average cop and the average perp. And then if that happens and continues to happen, you're going to see a lot more Tyree Nichols. Uh, I want you to hear what Heather McDonald uh, said over the weekend about what's going on here. Uh, as you know, she's also a crime expert. Well, this makes me long for the days, Tucker, when we heard ad nauseum from academia that blacks cannot be racist because racism equals power plus privilege, and blacks, by definition, have neither of them. Now we're at the point where racism is a virtually non-falsifiable proposition. My, my favorite example of this new paradigm is the claim that the fact that the five officers in Memphis were indicted for murder is itself a product of racism. So, you know, what's an ally to do? The only thing you can do is absolve favored victim groups of all accountability. So the, the, she was trying to get her head around what's going on with race and the accusations that it was still racial, racially inspired when five cops uh, killed a black man. Yeah, I mean, I think she's exactly right on this point. Um, you know, again, the idea that the, the, the way that that argument unfolds is that people say, well, even though they were black officers, they are part of an institution whose history yes. is racist, right? They're part of an institution that produces racially disparate outcomes. Therefore, they are also perpetuating racism irrespective of their skin color, which I think is just a completely denigrating argument to all of the, you know, black and brown men and women who wear the uniform and do the job well. The idea is that they're somehow unwitt unwitting participants in their own group suppression, which is an incredibly insulting and dim view of minorities uh, in, in this country. But, but it's also just ignorant of the massive benefits that have accrued to minority communities as a result of the efforts of policing. Again, between 1990 and 2014, the reduction in homicides added a full year of life expectancy to the average black man. It only added 0.14 years of life expectancy to the average white man. So I ask again, given the role that police played in that crime decline, how does it comport with the racism yeah. accusation that the products of this institution disproportionately benefit low-income minority communities? And, you know, there's study after study that shows this. There was a study a couple years ago that came out and showed that for every cop, you abate 0.1 homicides. Um, a year, meaning uh, meaning that for every 10 cops, you avoid one homicide a year for every year that those cops work. The effects, though, were twice as large in the black community as they were in the white community. That doesn't sound like racism. It doesn't. So, yeah. So so listen to uh, more from Heather McDonald, which she says uh, the stats just don't add up. The post-George Floyd horrors never stopped coming. Uh, we lost thousands more black lives to to drive-by shootings. Not a single one of those protested by Black Lives Matter activists. And police departments are now facing a retention and recruitment crisis at the same time that the pressure is escalating yet again to hire by race. 
uh, pressure that began under the Obama administration and even was more longstanding. Well, letting race trump merit is always a disaster, whether it's in policing or in medical training. And, and you went on and just it just it seems endless in terms of improvement. Uh, this is what the Nassau County police chief, Pat Ryder, said. And I'm going to tell you what the biggest issue that I think is, is something that runs through this country. The different standards of training that goes on. There should be a standard throughout the nation Absolutely. that we all must follow. And it's not. The standard should be a national standard about how you de-escalate, when you're allowed to use um, you know, deadly physical force, when you're allowed to use your taser. So he's for the national standard. Just, just your thoughts real quick on that, Raphael? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I'm not sure I, I agree with, with the national standard argument. I mean, first off, there are national standards on use of force, right? We, you know, the, the Fourth Amendment uh, jurisprudence is very clear. Tennessee versus Gardner is sort of the paradigm case on that, right? So all police are subject to the same requirements with respect to use of force, with respect to um, searches, et cetera. I, I, you know, on training, I do think the sort of laboratories of democracy approach, you know, makes some sense. We should eventually work toward best practices. I don't like the idea of a top-down uh, national standard, in part because you know that the top can be captured by ideological, you know, um, uh, that would be. And so, yeah, you always have to look that at would the be negative. a disaster. Raf, I'm going to have to hold it there. Raphael Manguel, thanks so much. Appreciate your expertise. Thank uh, you. He leaves rhetoric out, and I'll leave put you in one eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine. We go to the phones next. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. They busted him hard. I guess his um, account, his credit card account, was flagged for suspicious activity when he didn't uh, hire a prostitute within 24 hours. (laughs) And um, same thing happens when uh, Brian Stelter buys fruit. (laughs) Um, My last thing is, like, wasn't it probably fun for Biden to go through, like, a search of his own home because that's what he does every day? (laughs) Oh, wow. You know, he's walking around going like, there are my kids. That's where the guest bathroom is. I've been, oh, my God. I've been using my pants. So, Jamie Lissau having a good time yesterday on uh, Gutfeld. You said you went and saw him on stage? I did last weekend. Saturday night we went to uh, Bananas in New Jersey. Um, he was fantastic. So funny. Was he the headliner? Yes, he was. Um, right. So if he, I mean, no, he travels all over the country. So if he's near you, I highly suggest you go see him. One thing he said to you is, uh, I can't believe you came. Everyone says they're coming, but no one ever comes. Yes, he did. He emailed me that after. I can't believe you came. Thank you. And, um, yeah, I said I'm a woman of my word. And also, it's a problem in society. Everyone says, oh, I'm coming, and people don't show up. It's so rude. And But it's hard for you. You have three kids, all young, uh, all at pretty much the when twins, you go to the weekend. They're almost three. They were fine on their own. They take care of themselves? Totally fine. Right. I think that was good. Didn't someone leave their infant at the airport? They were rushing to get a plane? I didn't see that. Yeah, that's an interesting I bet thing. they made I the think plane, that's though. bad parenting. But the three are, at three years old. They're totally self-sufficient. And you should pay some of their bills. I don't mm. give me that. They need stuff. to work for it. They need to work for it? Child okay. labor laws. Oof. All right, that's where, that's the, that's your own Reddit survey. <laughs> yeah. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Good morning, guys. I'll get to the point right away. I'm retiring for good. I know the process uh, was a 
pretty big deal last time, so when I woke up this morning, I figured I'd just press record and let you guys know first, so I uh, won't be long-winded. You only get one super emotional retirement essay, and I used mine up last year, so I uh, really thank you guys so much to every single one of you for supporting me, my family, my friends, my teammates, my competitors. Uh, I could go on forever. There's too many. Thank you guys for allowing me to live my absolute dream. I wouldn't change a thing. Love you all. Yeah. Seven Super Bowls. I don't think you change a thing. I think five MVPs. Ian O'Connor joins us now, New York Post columnist, author of Belichick, uh, and one of the premier sports authors in the country, biographers in the country, was also uh, uh, back to writing columns in this great, in the, uh, the great sports section in New York Post. Ian, I could not wait to get your perspective on the beach goodbye from uh, from Tom Brady. What are your thoughts? Is this for good? Oh, yeah, Brian, I think it is. And I wasn't surprised he came back last year because there was still a lot of, I thought, a lot of uh, football left in him. And, and I had talked to him in 2017 about possibly playing until age 47, 48, even 50. And he was open to at least making that attempt and had said his wife had signed on to at least 45, and she was good with that. I don't know if anything changed there. But uh, this year, this, this was a tough year for him in a lot of ways, obviously off the field, on the field, finishing eight and nine. They made the playoffs, but the Buccaneers were not a good team, and he did not play at a Tom Brady level. So when you look at the way he announced it <laughs> and just the visuals of it, there's no coming back from that, Brian. He is done, <laughs> and I don't know what kind of a broadcaster he will be. He might be very good. He might be better than people expect, but he is the greatest football player of all time. He's not just the greatest quarterback of all time. Well, that's interesting for you to say because there's been so many unbelievable athletes playing all different positions in the most physical game America's ever produced. But I think what people find really astounding that doesn't get by you is that you know, Michael Jordan was going to be great. It was how great. Uh, you know, we know Kobe Bryant was going to be great. We just know how great. You know, we knew Dan Marino uh, more than likely was going to be outstanding. Joe Montana uh, over overachieved. I got it. But there was nobody picking him 199th that thought he was en route to being by far the greatest football player ever. How did, was everyone so wrong? Or what changed about him? In that same conversation I had with him when I was on the phone with him for about 45 minutes about six years ago, and he described it this way. I was an 0-8 freshman high school quarterback, a backup on an 0-8 team. I was seventh string at Michigan. And then, of course, the 199th pick in the NFL draft in 2000. So he didn't do it on physical gifts. He did it on willpower and determination and just refusing to not be great. And it's amazing that with his lack of any discernible physical and athletic gifts, he was able to be the greatest player of all time. And, and as you said, a, a sport that is built on speed and power and violence that he conquered all. And I, I do think it's a, it's really a testament to the human spirit and just his refusal to allow anything other than ultimate greatness to happen in his career. And so uh, I think when you, if you were to rank the top thousand athletes to ever play in the NFL, he wouldn't make that list. But he's still the greatest player ever because he played the most important position. And quarterback today, as you know, Brian, I know you're a sports fan, is eighty percent of the sport. 
if you don't have a quarterback, you cannot function in the More NFL than ever. anymore. More than ever, right? right? And, he, and here's a guy who came along, again, 199th pick in the draft. He won five Super Bowl MVPs. Nobody else has ever won four. Joe Montana won three, and that was his idol. So uh, he, I think he could still play, by the way. You look at his numbers this year, even though I said it was a bad Tom Brady year, and it was, he completed 67% of his passes, 25 touchdowns, nine interceptions, almost 4,700 yards passing. For most quarterbacks, that's, that's a really good year. But for him, if you looked at him, he didn't pass the eye test. And I think like most great athletes before him, they always say, when you start to lose it, that's when you have to be honest with yourself and say goodbye. And I think that's what he did. Right, and then the question is, would he would, would, going back to the Bucks? They probably wouldn't have been contenders. Why do it? And then where is he going to go? Is he going to go to a third team, learn a brand new system, get used to a brand new coordinator, go to a brand new city, knowing that his family is more likely going to be in Florida? How much do you think that put it put it uh, weight on his mind in his decision? I think family is a is a big factor, and obviously getting divorced, I think it really really impacted him on the field. He didn't talk about it uh, during the course of the season. I don't know if we'll ever completely open up about that, but that and talking to people who know him really had a significant impact on, as you might imagine it would. So I think family and being around his children more is, is a big factor here. He did look completely spent at the end of that season, physically, emotionally, he spiritually. So thin. Yeah. Yeah. He lost weight. And I think he looked at his, and this is really more in talking to people who know him, and this did not come directly from, from Tom, but his parents had a, a very long marriage, successful marriage, still married today. And I think he feels like that's what he wanted, and he didn't have that. And it ended this year, and I think that it was very hard for him to overcome that and perform on the field in a public arena. Most people go through divorce, and the trauma of that deal with it privately well, he's such a public figure. He had to deal with that and everybody kind of knowing and, and following the details of that. And that's not easy. And it's I, I can't imagine how you would perform at work going through all that in your personal life. And I, I, I do think that showed up on the field. Yeah, I understand that he toured a private school, that his kids have been homeschooled. I did not know that. Uh, that he's going to be living in Miami, I guess, near Giselle. And uh, we're talking with Ian O'Connor, of course, who wrote the book Belichick. And how long did it take you to put that book together? Really, uh, the better part of three years, Brian. I know you've done some incredible books and biographies, and you know how <laughs> it's, that's not an easy process. Belichick is probably the the greatest or the toughest mountain I've ever had to climb because he was calling people, asking them not to talk to me. And that's the first time that's happened to that extent, not surprising given who he is. And so, uh, but I do think uh, talking to, I don't know, 370 people for that book. That's that's probably the, the toughest assignment I've ever had, and hopefully people got a chance to read it, thought I was fair and 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 honest oh, yeah. and, and thorough and all those things, and, and that's always my goal as it is yours. Right, so how long did you talk to Brady for Belichick, and what did you take of their relationship? And do you think a lot of it is, well, they were just, uh, now that they're, he's retired, that maybe he might have a different perspective. What do you think it was, and what do you think it is? Well, he didn't talk to me for Belichick. He did talk to me for an ESPN piece, a lengthy piece on his career. And so there are a lot of people, as you might imagine, who are afraid to talk about Belichick on the record. He's a punitive guy. So uh, many people did talk to me uh, without uh, without being named. And 
So, but I think at the end of the day, Tom's retirement comes down to the fact that at, at the end of the season, he felt like he looked like and sounded like he had given everything he could possibly give to this sport. And there was nothing left to give. I think it was pretty simple, Brian, that he was done. He just felt it in every way. I don't know if he feels like it was a mistake unretiring last year and playing the season because it was such a, a difficult season professionally and personally to get through. And yet only Tom Brady would find a way at eight and nine to make the playoffs. What's amazing, Brian, outside of one year, wins the division. Wins the division. It was a bad division, but the only time he missed the playoffs as a healthy quarterback was 2002. He missed it in a tiebreaker to the Jets when they went nine and seven. But he made the playoffs every single year outside of the year he got hurt in 2008. And man, that I think says it all about his career. Maybe that's like another season. So it was really 24 seasons. So, uh, Ian, but just about his relationship with Kraft, Kraft has a three-minute piece up now talking about how he wants him to retire in a Patriots jersey. But you don't see a lot of great things coming from Belichick, and they were always polite to each other. Why do you think that is? I think that relationship was very productive for both, both people. I would say that was a transactional relationship, Belichick and Brady, where – Kraft and Brady was more transformational and they lived right near each other and they were, they were very good friends and they would send text messages to each other with very adoring terms of endearment in those texts. And that's not something Brady and Belichick would ever do. But I think that a lot of us, myself included, maybe focused on the terms of their divorce instead of, wow, they stayed together for 20 years. Yeah, that's true. And it's not easy to coach a superstar for 20 years at the highest level with the pressure and the stakes, winning six Super Bowls, losing a few in there and and maintaining that relationship. So I think probably not enough has been said about that, that Belichick and Brady stayed together for two decades and competed at the highest level and figured it out. That's not easy to do. And probably too much was was spent uh, time and attention on on the terms of their divorce. I think at the end, Brady was, as one of his friends told me, Belichicked out to get coached with that intensity for 24-7 for two decades, ultimately wore him out. And he went to a guy in Bruce Arians in Tampa who's a very user-friendly, player-friendly coach. And I think he was looking for that entirely different approach. But didn't he get rid of Bruce Arians? Didn't, wasn't that part of him coming back? Bruce Arians had to be kicked upstairs? That was uh, the word. Of course, everybody down there denied it. And I, I do think that it's interesting that after being coached a certain way by Belichick, they win the Super Bowl in Tampa in year one, everything's great. And then they don't win it the following year and everything isn't so great. And I wonder if deep down, not something that Brady would ever admit for public consumption, if he missed Belichick a little bit. Uh, Bruce Arians' motto was, or one of his mottos anyway, was we, we lose, we booze. I mean, he he was a <laughs> kind of fun-loving, gregarious guy and the opposite, polar opposite of Belichick. And so I wonder deep down if, at least in year two, Brady uh, missed that part of what he had in New England. Now, that's so interesting. Uh, now, your projection, uh, Giselle has a – I know this is the gossipy section of it, but they are the most high-profile sports couple in the country by far. She has Vanity Fair. She tells her side of the story. Even though she had a tweet that said, congratulations on your career, do you think he's? Do you think that could have played into it? And is he worried about some of the blowback on that? 
when we get divorced, obviously people aren't happy. He has not said anything derogatory that I know of. What do you expect? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question, Brian. What I will say is he did tell me that she signed off on him playing into his mid-40s. I asked him that specifically. Is she okay with this plan of getting to 45 and playing? So they got divorced when he was 45, and obviously she wasn't happy about him going back to play. But when we started talking about late 40s, he he did say, you know, my wife makes a lot of decisions for our family that I have to deal with. That is a direct quote. In fact, I had that in today's New York Post. So I I don't know how how it unraveled there. I'm a little surprised if she was that against him playing because she is one of the few people in the world who understood what it was like to be the best in the world at something. She was for however many years she was the top earning supermodel on the planet. It was her dynasty was greater than his dynasty. So it was like something like 14 or 15 straight years. So she understood what it was like and that you have a finite time to be the best in the world at something. So, but I I don't want to speculate on that because I don't know the answer to the question. I I will say uh, if that was a significant factor in the divorce, him playing football again, it, it would be a little, it, it was surprising to me that that was the case. Yeah, crazy. I mean, we got our own personal lives to worry about. Let's not worry about somebody else's. But it is fascinating because they're so high profile. And we'll, I guess we'll see what happens from here. Uh, just your prediction. You said you don't know. But as an analyst, you know what goes into it. And I think he, he comes to Fox. And they have a great A-team. A brand new A-team. They got a great ad too with Olsen uh, in there. I think he's done a great job. Do you think you can step? I've never seen anyone step right into the booth. I guess Romo did had some initial success, got a huge contract out of it. But you got to have it. You got to economize your words. I know he knows the game better than anybody else. But do you think he can relay it better than anybody else? Well, Greg Olson's done a really good job in year one for for Fox, and I, I actually played a couple of years of high school football for his father. So, but beyond uh, that bias, I I think he's done a really good job. I think Tom Brady is actually going to be better than people think. I think he'll go into the booth and he's suggested this at some point. And I forget where he said it, that he might decide to fire back at some critics over the years. And I think he'll go in there and say, listen, I was the best in in my first career. I want to be the best in my second career too. And maybe surprise people at how candid and how critical he'll be willing to be. Listen, at the end of the day, he can say, I'm Tom Brady. I won seven Super Bowls. Nobody else has ever done that. I am arguably the best football player who ever lived. I'm not going to be afraid to say things on the air like people think I'm going to be. So don't be surprised if he is really good at this, because I I think there's a a fair chance that's the case. Yeah, I I mean, I can't wait to hear it, but I do remember Joe Montana not saying anything for a year, for a couple of years after a while ago. Yeah, I don't really like this. And Drew Brees, I thought was going to be fantastic. He had one year, and everyone's like, he should really quit. So I don't. You never, you never know. No, those are good points. I just think Tom Brady's a different animal. I don't think he'd ever try anything without being the best at it. Right. So uh, I guess we'll see how it plays out. And Ian, he's the only man who's who's better looking than you and me. <laughs> yeah, times ten. At least me. Anyway, <laughs> Ian, about you. Uh, well, listen, you know, I know about me. Uh, Ian, thanks so much. Always great to get your insight. Pick up Belichick. Get more insight. Thanks, Ian. All right, thank you, Brian. Take and care. the New York Post. Uh, back in a moment. 
Educating. Entertaining. Enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Uh, just a quick thing. I wanted to play this one soundbite for you because it's one of the few funny things come out of late night television in a while. Jimmy Fallon was does his thing or, or truth or lie. So Derek Jeter was on, and then they have to read what's in one of the envelopes and when the one they pick, and then they have to say it out loud, and then they got to find out if it's true or false. Listen to this. Let me explain shortly. I, I had a new teammate that I played with in 2002, and he always had a gold thong hanging from his locker. And he told me, anytime you struggle, you wear the gold thong, you're guaranteed to get a hit. And I thought the guy was crazy. So in 2004, I went through the worst offensive stretch of my career. Okay. And every day I'd walk in, he'd point at the thong. So, so finally, I, I wore the thong. Now, it wasn't thong the skin. I had shorts on underneath, so I put the thong over the shorts. First pitch, home run. So it is true that he wore a gold thong in a game. It's true. He did wear them, over, as you heard, over his, his regular underwear, but it's not fantastic. Jimmy Fallon and the other uh, singer who was there did not think he actually did. They thought it was a lie. So I guess that's it, it, a pretty good game. You kind of tried to come up with something innovative that doesn't revolve around Donald Trump. Yeah. That, that's the key. Uh, but they're all losing to uh, all losing to Gutfeld. So listen, uh, we have a lot. To, we have a lot to go over this this hour. Uh, we're following all those stories do it throughout the day. We also know that uh, Congresswoman Omar is uh, pleading her case to see if she could not get kicked off the Foreign Relations Committee. She's anti-Semitic. She's pretending as if she's not. That's a little bit of a problem, don't you think? Don't forget uh, if you want to get any of my books, BrianKillMe.com. I order them, I sign them, I send it. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.